question that needs to be answered from this passage is simply this. Will you live not by fear of your circumstances, but by faith in Jesus? Will you live not by fear of your circumstances, but by faith in Jesus? Now, there are many fears, fears, very elementary fears, arachnophobia, fear of spiders, there's fear of heights. I'd rather be on the ground than on the edge of a building. Some are afraid of water. But I found this last week. If you just Google in people's number one fear, the number one fear that pops up on the information machine of Google is the fear of speaking in public. So that might describe you, and it describes me most Sunday mornings. Right in the middle of the passage, um, we'll get to it in just a moment. But I want you to see where this passage is leading us. There's a two-part question that Jesus asks. And the two-part question is this. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And what we see from that question is that there's a connection between fear and faith. Your heart will either be filled with greater amounts of fear that push out faith and make you a slave to fear. Or there will be faith. Perhaps even just a small amount of faith, perhaps just the size of a mustard seed that pushes out fear and liberates you from your fears. So the question again is, are you living in fear today or are you living in faith? Are you trusting God with your circumstances, even this morning right now that you're facing the emotions, the circumstances? The command in Scripture is very prevalent. Do not fear. We see this Many times throughout the Old Testament, let me just turn your attention to a few passages. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, says this, After these things, God is speaking to Abram. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and he told Abram, Fear not, Abram. Why? Because I am your shield. Then a few chapters later, to Hagar, Sarah's servant. She's been run out of the camp, and God heard the voice of the boy And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. Why should you fear not? For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Abraham's son, Isaac, Genesis 26, verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. Why? For I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Continuing on in Exodus, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. Why? See the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And that was right there at the Red Sea. So it's clear that throughout Scripture, and we could go and take a whole sermon, and I could just rattle verse after verse after verse about fear not, fear not, fear not. Throughout the Scriptures, there is the command that is given over and over again to not fear. First Peter chapter 3, I love how Peter encourages us to not fear. He uses the example of Sarah, who had hope or faith in God. And out of her faith in God, she faced frightening things. And here's what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. And you are her children. You follow in her footsteps if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening or terrorizing or intimidating. 
And why is it that Sarah could have that path in her life? It's because earlier in the chapter, Sarah and women like Sarah had put their hope in God, not in their circumstances. So this morning's sermon is going to require us to answer the question, will your fear give way to faith in God? So here's the big idea that I want you to walk away with this morning. The big idea is faith in God, not fear, must lead my life. Faith in God, not fear, must lead my life. Now, where have we been uh, in the book of Mark? Specifically, um, Mark has done several things for us. The beginning of Mark, he has introduced us to Jesus, and he has given us those important names, the Messiah, the Son of God, in chapter 1, verse 1. He's giving us an identity for who Jesus is, and Jesus is not just a person. His identity and who he really is should cause us to turn our eyes from our circumstances to see him and believe in him. So we've been introduced to Jesus. We've been introduced to his miracles throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 4, there were parables that Jesus was teaching, and these parables were about the kingdom of God, how Jesus is coming with his rule and reign, his power and his authority. And this realm in which he is ruling and reigning is not specifically a geographical location. It's in the lives and hearts of people. So he comes powerfully in chapter 1 and he sees people who are demon-possessed and he says, that person is mine. I'm going to exercise my rule and reign in that person's life and cast that demon out of that individual. You see throughout the other chapters where Jesus is performing miracles to display his kingdom power. And so he'll see people who are paralyzed or crippled and he will exercise his power and authority to show, here is who I am. I am the Messiah. I'm the son of God. I have come to deliver my people. And so he heals people who are sick. And in the end, we're saying this, that if Jesus has the power and authority to be able to do those things, we better trust the claims that he is stating. So we move into a new section of Mark. This particular section of Mark is going to take us for the next three sermons uh, we are going to see Jesus' power in four different realms. We talked about kingdom. A kingdom has a realm. Well, we're going to see more aspects of his ruling power in these realms. These four realms that we'll see over the next few weeks as we study out Mark are the realms of nature. That will be today. Then in two weeks, we're going to see Jesus' power in the realm of demons as we look at the maniac in Gadara. And then the following week, we will see Jesus' power over disease and death. In each of these stories, his power is pointing back to this reality that for the disciples is being hidden, yet slowly revealed. It's, it's not fully revealed, but there's this, this continuing revelation of who Jesus is, that he's no ordinary man. We are seeing that all of these miracles and all of these stories point to the undeniable truth that he is divine in essence. Jesus is the Son of God. And in particular, concerning today's story, if he is the Son of God, our fears should and can give way to faith. Some of you are wrestling with fear this morning, fear of the unknown, fear of what's going to happen. As we look at this passage, 
we get through it, we want our eyes on Jesus, the Son of God, knowing that our fear and our circumstances can give way to faith in Jesus. Okay, so four points, and they're very bland points to the sermon this morning. Point number one, the setting. Isn't that good? The setting, okay? What's the setting? It says in verse 35, on that day. So which day is it? It's the end of chapter 4 where Jesus was teaching those parables. It's been a full day of preaching for Jesus. Now the end of the day has come. It says evening had come. So the sun is setting behind the mountains surrounding the Sea of Galilee. It's time for the crowds that have come to hear Jesus speak. It's time for them to go home and for everyone to get rest. Everyone that is except the disciples. Because Jesus says in verse 35, let us go across to the other side. So they are near the Sea of Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee. And these guys, many of them are fishermen. Jesus has been teaching from a boat in much of his teaching ministry here. And so now he tells these guys, hey, it's time for us to go to the other side of this lake. Now if we step back. I haven't been to Israel, maybe some of you have, and maybe you've been to the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, at its widest part, and probably where Jesus is crossing, is eight miles long, west to east, east to west. So just to get a mental figure on that, from our location down to the consumer's power plant is seven miles. So if we go up to Brucker, just up the road here, and you go down to the water, and you look all the way down the beach line, and then you see the smokestack coming up, or the steam stack, that's about eight miles wide. And then this lake is 13 miles long, north to south here. And Jesus is saying to these guys, it's evening time, but we got a little more to do. you got to get me across to the other side. They get into this boat, And it says that other boats were with him in verse 36. So it's not just the disciples and Jesus. It's several boats that are along with him as they go out there. Out of curiosity, what could this boat have been like? Many commentaries include this in this passage here that in 1986, archaeologists discovered a boat that was at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee that was dated back to around the first century. And this boat is approximately 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four feet high. And a boat like this would have had decking on the front, so it's got four feet wide high walls here, and decking on the front, and underneath that decking on the front, oh, and decking on the back, the stern back here, you could store supplies, Or if somebody was tired, they could find a cubby hole under there and get some rest. In verse 37, here's the setting still. It says that a great windstorm arose. And the way that this language is presented here is meant to tell us that this was spontaneous. This wasn't something that they looked off to the horizon and saw a dark cloud coming. Remember, it's night. This is something that kicked up without any warning. And this can happen on the Sea of Galilee because of its geography. The Sea of Galilee is approximately 700 feet below sea level. Now, Death Valley is 282 feet. And you know that the lower you go below sea uh, level, the warmer the temperatures can get. 
And so you have this lake that is deep below sea level, but it's surrounded by mountains all around it. And what can easily happen is if the temperature and the weather patterns are just right, you have cooler air up on top of the mountains, warmer air down on this lake that's below sea level, and if the wind pushes just correctly, that cool air from the mountains can fall off down into gorges and get a kind of a, a tunneling effect and hit the warm water, and you have this tempest that can kick up real quick. People along the Sea of Galilee say that this is somewhat normal. And so here is Jesus with his disciples in a boat in verse 37, at night, and a great windstorm has risen, and it says in verse 37 that waves are splashing over this boat that has four-foot-high walls, and it's coming into the boat. Now, if you've been out canoeing, you know that water in the boat is no big deal. Uh, that happens all the time. But you know that if there are big waves on the lake kind of splashing over the edge of the canoe, that canoe has a threshold to it. Once there's too much water in that canoe, it's going to cause it to sink down to the bottom of the lake and be buried there. The same is going on with this boat that is manned by fishermen who are no strangers to the sea. They know what these boats can handle, and it says that the waves are breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, here's a picture of the sea. Here's a picture of water. And water is a theme that is regularly presented in Scripture. I shouldn't say regularly because it's only a few episodes. But when it's presented, it can be a destructive agent. You think about Genesis 6. When God looked at the world and it was filled with wickedness, he sent water as a form of judgment. You look at Exodus chapter 14, where God parted the Red Sea to give his people a path of deliverance from the Egyptians. But in the second half of that story, God used the water to swallow up Egypt's army as a form of judgment. And here are the disciples out on the water, and all of a sudden, the water has kicked up and it is beginning to swallow their boat. And where's Jesus in the midst of all this? It says in verse 38 that he was in the stern. That's the back of the boat. And he's asleep on a cushion. And many of you are thinking, man, if I was out on a lake at night with waves that were just pounding up against the boat and guys yelling back and forth to each other, barking out instructions, saying, you know, help me with this, get that bucket over there, get the water out. How is it possible that Jesus could possibly be falling asleep in the back of the boat right now? Remember Thanksgiving? And remember, I'll say, Uncle Ben, who comes over. Kids are running around, people are talking, dog is barking, and there's Uncle Ben at the end of the couch with his arms crossed, his chin down, and so much life is going on, but he's just got his eyes closed. He's got to catch some shut-eye. He's whipped. He's just whipped from the day. This is Jesus. He's been teaching. He's been carrying out his ministry. This just shows that he has been hard at work, and he's tired. He knows what it feels like to be tired. Here he is asleep. Second point, the disciples' question. 
in the middle of verse 38, above everything that is going on, the disciples move to the back of the boat. They find Jesus there asleep. And here you see in the middle of verse 38 their question. Teacher, do you not care? And I imagine that that question was not stated with the kind of volume that I just gave to you. With the waves crashing over the boat and the disciples frantically trying to keep this thing afloat, I have a feeling that they're shaking him saying, Teacher, do you not care what's going on right now? And if you pause for just a moment and catch everything that's going on in Mark, that question, waking Jesus up, is intensely personal. Jesus, don't you care? Don't you have any interest in us right now? In the heat of the moment, it's very revealing for where the disciples are. They're desperate. But it's also meant to be thought of in light of Jesus's care throughout the gospel of Mark up to this point. Does Jesus care? I mean, from what we have read and what we've studied, is Jesus the son of God? Does he care about people? You could say that he rescued them out of their perishing, going all the way back to chapter one, where he cast out demons he healed sick people, he healed lepers, he healed the paralytic, he healed a man with a crippled hand on the Sabbath right in front of the Pharisees. Jesus has shown care. He's shown care by delivering people out of their circumstances. The disciples have seen that. Now, here are the disciples in some very difficult circumstances. It's their hour of need. Now, isn't it hard to see other people brought up out of their peril, yet you remain in yours? I mean, isn't it difficult when you see people in difficult circumstances, and maybe it's something that we've been praying about intensely, and you see them lifted out of their circumstances, but you remain in yours? Doesn't it seem like God has given blessings to other people in their time of need, but when it comes to your time of need, you're asking the question, God, do you really care? Don't you care that I am facing this struggle right now, that I am perishing? It's the topic, it's the question that often comes up in the Psalms. Look at these passages. Psalm 10, verse 12. Arise, O Lord, Oh God, lift up your hand and notice what he says. Forget not the afflicted. Hint, hint, I'm the one who's afflicted. Psalm 35, verses 17 and 18. How long, O oh Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. God, how long are you going to stand there and do nothing about my situation? Psalm 119, verse 132. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. God, I've seen you be gracious to other people who love you. Now I'm in the hot seat and I do love you. Will you turn to me right now? Will you turn to me and care? Will you turn to me and be gracious? There's times when we find ourselves in those situations. 
And the question is, God, do you care that I'm perishing? Do you care that I'm suffering right now? You might ask, where does that kind of question come from? Well, when our circumstances are difficult, there are three things, at least three things, that can stem that question. Number one is fear. Fear that our lives are not going to be the way they once were. Fear that our families, possibly our children, like what the disciples had back on shore. Fear that our family and our children are going to lose something that I want them to have. It can come from exhaustion. Here are the disciples at the end of a busy day, having carried a demanding schedule. The needs, the crowds, they never stop. And here's exhaustion just pressing in. It can come from frustration. Here are sailors who have been out on the sea, and they can't fix this situation themselves. They've endured through weather like this before, but this one's beaten them up. It's got the upper hand. We experience these things, fears, exhaustions, and frustrations. And you could say even maybe right now, wherever you're at, you never picture yourself in 100 years staring at the circumstances that feel as though they are going to swallow you up and take you down to the bottom of the lake. It's as though the circumstances are going to get the last laugh. And you know God is almighty. You know that Jesus is the Son of God. And you're like, I'm trying to trust him. God, do you care that I am perishing? Does God care for his people? That's what the disciples want to know. Point number three, Jesus' response. Jesus' response. Jesus responds in two ways. His first response is in verse 39 where it says that he awoke and he rebuked the wind. Where have we seen that word rebuke up to this point in Mark? It's been where he has rebuked demons. I'm not saying that the storm was caused by a demon. Maybe it was. It's just that when Jesus sees something that is opposing his kingdom, he will stand up to that and he will rebuke that. In his power, he will take care of it. Earlier, Mark had described the scene in verse 37 as this great windstorm that had arisen. Jesus speaks up in verse 33 to this great windstorm, and with three words, he says, Peace and be still. That's all he has to say. And in verse 39, it says that there was a great calm. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. What's Jesus doing? He's revealing his divine essence. He's revealing that he is God in the flesh by exercising power over creation, over the wind and over the sea. And as you look at the Bible, it's only God who can control these elements of nature. You go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible and you see that it's by God's word that creation comes into existence. He speaks and there's light. He speaks and there's a separation from the waters. He speaks, and then there's land. He speaks, and then there's the sun, moon, and stars. He speaks, and then there's fish and birds. He speaks, and then there's man. God uses his voice to bring nature into existence. He uses his voice to take that which is chaotic and bring it into structure. 
This is God who is speaking to his nature, and he's coming to it, and he's just saying with three words, peace, be still, and it heeds his commands. In Exodus, you see God just simply bringing nature as he chose to bring it with the plagues. Psalm 107, verse 29 says, He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Perhaps a forecasting, a foreshadowing of this event. As the one who instantaneously exercises control and power over the wind and sea, Mark is presenting Jesus in such a way that helps us see him for who he is. He is the son of God who has authority over nature. This is the realm now that we're seeing Jesus rise up over and say, even that is mine. But there's a second response from Jesus. He speaks first to nature, and then he speaks to his people, and he speaks with a question. And he asks these two questions. Number one is this. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? And have you still no faith? I don't think the question was meant to come across harshly. I don't think his tone, just personally, as I've I've just sort of kind of worked my way into this passage this last week, and this is sort of just Burkholtz speculation here. It doesn't seem as though Jesus is coming at his disciples with a harsh rebuke, but sometimes the truth just stated for what it is confronts just enough to speak for itself. And maybe the truth itself is rebuking him. Are you still afraid? Why? And have you still no faith? And here you see Jesus pitting fear against faith. It's either going to be fear. Why are you still afraid? And have you no faith over here? These two are not going to be equal in value in an individual's heart. One or the other will dominate your heart and will come out when life gets hard. Maybe you can think of it this way. At work, you've got those Culligan water jugs that are delivered. Those clear things, you know, they tip them up on top of that little stand. And you press down on the handle that little valve, and what's in the jug comes out into your cup. When life presses down on the valve of your heart, something is going to come out, and it's going to be either fear or faith. Fear has a tendency to pull us away from God and to fix our eyes on the circumstances that are in front of us. Fear causes us to ask questions like this. How am I going to possibly make it through this? How am I going to possibly make it through this? What will happen to me in all of this? What should I do that is best for me at this point in life? Or I'm looking around at other people's circumstances. I don't deserve this. And it can even get subtly spiritualized by throwing in a little bit of God. God, help me, but all the while fear is ruling my heart and I keep my hands on the circumstances trying to get them to the end that I want them to. As you look at Hebrews 11 and read about those who demonstrated faith in their lives, we see something altogether different. Faith believes that God is real and what he says is true and best. 
So if God leads us into the boat and says, get in the boat and go across the sea, that's real and best. And if we're in the boat and God leads us into circumstances that are outside of our control, no matter what it is, that's real and best for us to be there right now. Do we understand it? Absolutely not. We can't. We can't understand it. But faith continues moving forward. And when the question comes up like, how can I go through this season of life? Faith says and responds to that by saying, God, I'm trusting you to lead. When the question comes up of what will happen to me? Faith in God says, I'm not as concerned about what will happen to me as much as I'm concerned about, God, how can I do this and glorify you while I go through it? When the question of what should I do that is best for me at this point of life comes up, faith responds by asking, what does God say about my situation and how should I obey him? You see, faith is taking our gaze away from the circumstances that are going on here and saying, okay, they're present right now, but God, in the midst of those circumstances, I've got to lift my eyes off of them, and I have to be thinking and trusting and focusing on you. So where are you right now? What or who is leading you? Is it fear and your circumstances, or is it faith in the Son of God who rules over nature. Point number four. The disciples' second question. In conclusion to all that's taken place, Jesus has led them through this storm on the sea. He has revealed to them that as the Son of God, he has power over the realm of nature He's commanded nature with just a word, peace, be still. And all of a sudden, this thing just cuts out and it's done. And now the disciples are left with a third question. It's the question in verse 41 of who then is this? Who then is this? A great calm has come upon the sea. And that's the third time Luke has used, or Mark has used this term great. There was the great storm. There was this great calm. And now in verse 41, sorry, I got things mixed up a little. Now there's this great fear as they're asking this question. This great internal, I don't think it's fear as in phobia of Jesus. It's this growing respect. It's this growing awe for who Jesus is. And they're asking, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's the second time that this question has been asked. Back in chapter 1, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. It's powerful. People are listening. And then this guy presents himself with a demon in him, throws himself down on the ground and starts, you know, just making a disruption. Jesus rebukes the demon. The demon flees. And the people respond and said, who then is this guy? Who is he that he can do that? And here are the disciples asking the same question. Who is he? Who is this guy that can speak? And the answer is, in the book of Mark, it's God. This is the, the revealing that Mark is making. We've read the rest of Mark, so we know what the answer is. 
But the disciples are struggling with this all along, and Jesus is slowly revealing his nature. It's God. I'm God. It's God in the flesh. It's God who is all-powerful and clearly in powerful control over nature. And he is bringing in his kingdom. His power and strength is with him. And he will take his power and deliver you from the greatest perishing you and I could ever face. That's what the disciples are at. We're perishing. Do you care? Here's Jesus coming. And yes, he does care. And yes, he does deliver from perishing. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. And how did he love the world? He loved the world in this way that he gave his only son that whoever believes in this Son should not perish, but have eternal life. If you're here this morning as a non-Christian, your greatest problem is not your circumstances right now. Your greatest problem is that you stand before Almighty God, guilty before him because of the sin that you have committed against him. I've been there. We've all been there. That's your greatest problem because God in his holiness rightly renders a verdict against all sin saying judgment, judgment, judgment. And the right judgment that we all deserve is eternity in hell forever and ever because we've sinned against almighty God. But here is God who is saying, I will save those who are perishing. How will they be saved? By placing their faith in Jesus who took the judgment for those sins that we've committed. The greatest need that you have right now is belief in Jesus as the Son of God who saves you from eternal perishing. Christian, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who rules over nature, then this morning, why are you still afraid? Have you still no faith? The big idea is then let fear give way to faith. And what is it that you're struggling with this morning? What is it that you are fearful of this morning? Here's how the psalmist responds in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. He says, when I am afraid, here's what I do. Here's what I need to do. I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What can anything do to me? Jesus, the Son of God, who rules over nature, he cares for me. Some of you are facing fearful times. It's the relationship. It's the health issue. It's the doubt you are struggling with. And here is Jesus who says, I care. And he asks you, why are you so afraid? I'm here. Have you still no faith? So for us, we close with this thought. We trust the Son of God. And we will let fear of circumstances this week give way to faith in Jesus, who is our Savior. Let's pray.